0: To seek your grace and to hear from your word I pray that you would work in our souls to melt us and mold us after the spirit of Jesus Christ who came to this world not to be served but to serve to give his life a ransom for many he came to seek and to save that which was lost and he did it with a passion O oh Lord, may we learn from the great lover of souls today. May our hearts be touched. In the name of Christ we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. When Oliver Cromwell was ruling England, the nation had a great crisis. They ran out of silver and they could no longer mint new coins. Out of desperation, Cromwell sent army soldiers to go into the local cathedral to see if they could find any silver. And they came back with this report. The only silver we find is in the statues of the saints. Well, Cromwell Cromwell was no lover of icons, so he immediately said, I want you to go get the saints. Let's melt them down and put them back into circulation. You think about that for a moment. That's a great statement. The saints of God need to be melted down from arrogance and pride and selfishness so that we can properly integrate our lives into the midst of a world that is lost and dying. It's high time for the people of God to recirculate into the general populace. I think this is what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew chapter 5, we are the salt that is in the world to keep it from decay. We are the light that has been placed in the world to dispel the darkness. And we cannot do it unless we engage in the culture and the affairs of those around us. Now, the big problem is we don't want to get too involved because we're afraid that if we get involved, we'll not be able to hold the righteous standards of the Scripture. And that is certainly a a legitimate concern. But nowhere in the Scripture does that concern trump the need for us to be engaged. Unfortunately, the saints don't circulate too well. As it was said four decades ago, observed by Joe Altridge in his life-changing book on lifestyle evangelism, he said, after knowing the Lord Jesus for only two years, the average Christian has no significant relationships with unbelievers. We go to a Christian church, we have Christian Bible studies, we work for Christians, we go to a Christian dentist, and all those things aren't bad except... We have no significant relationships with the people that we need to touch. It's time for the saints to get back into circulation. And so Mark chronicles this wonderful story in Luke chapter 2 about Jesus mixing with the multitude, mingling with the masses, with the most needy and marginalized people of his day. It's quite an amazing story. Luke Chap- or excuse me, Mark. Mark chapter 2 and verse 13. You'll find this story in Matthew chapter 9. You'll find it in Luke chapter 5. But we're going through Mark. And I love the way he gives us this story in just a few verses. Look at verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. That's referring to the Lake Tiberias. It's also called the Sea of Galilee. And a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. Life for Jesus was lived by the lake. His new adopted home was Capernaum. You see that chapter 2, verse 1. And it was from that place that he was teaching when the paralytic was healed, healed, and still in that place when he got up and decided to walk by the lake and, and do some teaching. In the face of growing opposition, which we see beginning here in Mark chapter 2, There are five stories of conflict of people who oppose Jesus. And this is the second one. There is still this extremely popular Jesus. People loved to hear him preach. They heard him gladly. And they came from everywhere. I think it was because they were at awe in his ability to forgive sin. I think also because of his audacity not only to heal people physically but spiritually they were amazed at his authority when he would teach in fact jesus was walking and talking that's how rabbis often taught and you couldn't find a better better schoolroom a classroom than the sea of galilee along that northern shore and whenever jesus would see a crowd he'd love to teach and that's what it says here a, ra- a large crowd came to him and He began to teach them. By the way, this is the fifth fifth reference in Mark's gospel to the teaching ministry of Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 14, his message was given, repent and believe the good news. In chapter 1 and verse 21, it talks about his authority in teaching. In verse 38 of chapter 1, it talks about the purpose. This is why I came to teach. And his passion for teaching is revealed here in chapter 2 for the second time. Jesus came to teach the word. He is the living word incarnate. And he must proclaim the living word to needy souls. And that's why we want to do the same thing as a church that is seeking to follow the Lord Jesus. So as he walks, he talks. And he happens by a toll booth. On this map here that uh, we're showing you of the land of Israel, uh, there is a... Road that comes down from Damascus. Uh, This road is called the Via Maris, and it comes making its way down to the Sea of Galilee and then kind of goes across the northern part of the sea from an east to west direction, and it goes right through Capernaum, and then it goes along the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and then it heads southwest through the Megiddo all the way to uh, Caesarea. On the sea and then turns south along the Mediterranean Sea all the way down to Egypt one of the major uh, trade routes in that particular day and Herod Antipas set up these tax booths and he was running this one and when you came into his territory one of the first towns you came to actually was this village town this sea town of Capernaum the hometown of Jesus And there was a toll booth on the road, much like you would find today in many of our highways that have the same thing. Verse 14, as Jesus walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. And immediately we're impressed with the fact that This is going to be, this discussion with this tax collector is going to end up in a rather surprising conversion. This guy's a corrupt citizen, as most people would deem him. He's an outcast. He's a scoundrel. He's an IRS agent. Worse, actually. And so they're surprised by the fact that Jesus has a conversation with him that Jesus would even talk with him. Because they won't talk with a guy like this. They would avoid him. Tax franchises were sold kind of like fast food food franchises to the highest bidder. And you were required by Rome to pay so much tax on an annual basis, but you could charge more and pocket the difference. In fact, that's how you made your money. There was a poll tax in that day uh, that was uh, placed on everyone basically who was alive from age 14 to 65. There was a property tax. You had to give 10% of your grain, 20% of your wine and oil, and there was also a fish tax in certain places, probably like the village of Capernaum because that was their major industry. There was an income tax, 1%. (laughs) on all the income that you brought in. In addition to the grain and the wine tax, nothing is new under the sun, right? The taxes just multiply. There was a wide variety of taxes, taxes on imports, taxes on exports, duty fees, license fees. When you would dock your boat at the dock in Capernaum, there was a tax for that. Tolls on the road. In fact, they would even tax each axle on a cart. and You say that sounds ludicrous, but if you drive an 18-wheeler, you know exactly what's happening. So the tax system was quite involved and quite sophisticated, but the Romans would hire a Jew to take taxes from his countrymen. And so because of that, he became a hated individual. They were intensely hated, loathed detested think about it they were called sharks traitors hirelings despised because they worked for the Roman government morally they were condemned they were excluded from going to the synagogue they were not allowed in and socially outcast never trusted would never be called on jury duty Which may not be a bad thing, but it's because they didn't trust their testimony. And so this is the guy that Jesus begins a conversation with. They are intensely hated, but they are extremely rich. And as someone has said, they amass their fortune by selling their souls. Most tax collectors, and we read about another famous one in Luke 19, a guy by the name of Zacchaeus got his money and his wealth from defrauding people. It's interesting, if you couldn't pay the tax, they had another system, they would give you a loan (laughs) at an unusual rate of interest. And if you didn't pay that loan, they had enforcers to come to make sure you would pay. Get the picture? Despised. Oh, and people knew Levi. He was from that town. He lived In that vicinity, he'd been bleeding them dry for years. And that's why Jesus, talking to this tax collector, I'm sure, shocked everyone who was around there. This scoundrel, this pond scum, this rat fink, which comes out of my junior high years. Why did Jesus talk to him? Why call this guy? It's interesting to note, as we heard sung a moment ago, that Jesus is a friend to sinners. One of the most appealing things about the character of the perfectly pure Jesus is his compassion for those who are outcast, for sinners. I'm sure people were really stunned, not only that he talked to him, but that he invited him to follow. Isn't that amazing? It's the glory of Jesus Christ to restore those who are most fallen, to help the desperate cases. And so Christ goes for the marginalized. He loves to invite the disenfranchised. He loves to bring to him everyone else that people rejects, like a Mary Magdalene and like a Zacchaeus or Levi. He's someone who sees beyond the flaws to see the potential in a hungry heart. And aren't you glad Jesus calls the outcasts and the sinners like you and like me? Oh, Pastor, I thought you were talking about someone else. No, I'm talking about you. We are the sinners. Maybe if you don't believe it yet, I hope you will by the end of the message. The question that we need to ask ourselves is this. When we look at people, what do we see? Do we see their sin? Do we see their idiosyncrasies and their weaknesses and character flaws and their offenses? Do we see that or do we see a needy soul that will spend eternity in either heaven or hell? Do we see a person that Jesus came to save and a soul that he died for on the cross? Jesus didn't see a greedy thief. He saw a hurting heart. And soon the money grabber of the Galilee is going to become one of the most generous, sincere, genuine believers that you could find anywhere. I mean, talk about a transformation. This is going to be astounding but the story becomes even more intriguing when you see the response that Levi gives you might expect that when Jesus says to Levi come and follow me the guy might say ah i'm not so sure he had a lot to lose There was another rich man who came to Jesus, and he was young. And Jesus said, sell everything you have and come and follow me. It's not that selling everything you have gives you eternal life, but that was his God. So Jesus was basically saying, repent of the God you love and take me as God, your new Lord. And the rich man went away sorrowful because he had But look at this, Jesus said to Levi, follow me, and he followed, verse 14. He got up and followed, a decisive act, immediately. That's impressive. There's no apparent hesitation in the life of this guy. Now, I'm sure he had already been exposed to Jesus and his teaching. They lived in the same town. He probably was one of the guys in chapter 1 when it says the whole city came to watch Jesus heal and to hear him teach. And much like Zacchaeus trying to find a place up a tree so he could hear over the crowd so that he could get to Jesus, I think Levi might have done the very same thing. Oh, he'd heard Jesus before. This wasn't the first go around. But now when the message came, follow me, immediately he followed. And he left more than all the other disciples ever left. Did you think about it? The fishermen disciples, Peter, James, and John, they could go back to their fishing. It was a family business. Zebedee was still carrying on the work, and in fact, Peter does go back to the fishing business at the end of John chapter 21. But Levi, he broke his contract with Rome, and there was no going back. He burned his toll booth, and that was it. There's no way back, no way to recover. Think about it. He had already paid the fees for the entire year, and he was going to lose all of those, as well as future earnings that he had been enjoying all of his life. It was all gone. And I tell you, people are surprised at the response of this follower of Jesus. Surprised when Jesus talks to him, They're stunned when Jesus invites him to follow. And they are amazed when that's exactly what Levi does. But if you've been shocked up to this point, you haven't seen anything yet. Look at verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner, maybe later that night, maybe the next day, Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. That is, many undesirables were following him. And now we are introduced to what you might call a scandalous dinner. A scandalous supper. And I'm sure people were shocked by what Jesus did. He ate with them. Now you have to remember, in ancient times... A meal was actually an acknowledgment of acceptance. You didn't sit at long tables away from one another. You reclined on, partially on the body of the person next to you. To have a meal with someone meant that you were establishing a bond with them. There was some degree of acceptance. <laughs> and you just didn't do that with sinners. They were shocked by what he did. We're told in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, this was a great banquet. For what? Well, it might have been a retirement party. (laughs) A farewell party. Levi was done with his taxes. might have been a conversion party. I like that idea. Isn't that a great idea? When, When you give your life to Jesus Christ, why not have some of your old friends over for dinner and tell them what happened? But it was also a party to honor the one who just transformed this guy's life. It was a party to honor, a banquet to celebrate Jesus. And so Levi invites the only friends he has. It's kind of interesting. You know, these Pharisees didn't want to be friends with this guy. And now they're criticizing him for inviting his friends when they wouldn't have been his friends before anyhow. I mean, this is the only friends this guy has. If he's going to have friends over for dinner, it's going to be other tax collectors and sinners. And by the way, in that category of tax collectors and sinners, you would add prostitutes. They were commonly put into that category. Traitors. And the non-religious who never attended the temple. After Levi opened his heart, he opened his home. And that's what Christians do. Hospitality is a great trait of someone whose whose heart has been touched by Jesus Christ. You open your home. Not just to those who can do something for you, but to those who really need you. And what was Jesus doing? Well, I'll tell you one thing he wasn't doing. He wasn't condemning them. Because if he had been condemning them, the Pharisees would have said, Man, I'm glad he's letting them have it. Go for it. But he wasn't doing that. He was eating. He was enjoying a meal. And I'm sure the conversation was about righteousness and how to change your life and about God and about the future. I'm sure he was giving forth biblical truth. This made some of the religious crowd very angry. Look at verse 16. When the teachers of the law... who were were Pharisees. First time the Pharisees are mentioned in Mark's gospel. And by the way, we usually give these guys a bad rap. They were not all bad. We read Matthew 23, Woe to the Pharisees, woe to the Pharisees, hypocrites, hypocrites. But they're not all hypocrites. You've got people like Nicodemus, Gamaliel, and some other honorable Pharisees. I mean, they started out well during the time of the Maccabees, their Re- Maccabean revolt, and they were following in the trail of the faithful um, Hasidim. They did their very best to honor the law of God. They were devoted to the law, and they stood against the influence of the Grecian Uh, philosophies of life that began to come in and mix with Hebrew uh, scriptural principles and form a new Hellenistic society. They stood against that worldliness, and in many cases they should have. The word Pharisee means separate. They loved the law of God so much that they wanted to hedge it in with a bunch of commandments. We've mentioned this before. About 613 commandments, 248 were positive, 365 were negative. One negative commandment for every day. And these commandments would separate them from the low life of the world. And one of their laws was you don't eat with sinners. You don't even go into their house You don't countenance their existence. You don't talk to them. Why would you? They are sinners. And some of it might rub off on you. That's always a danger. But as I said, that concern should never trump our passion and desire to get to know them and love them. Remember this, because that's exactly where we were. And aren't you glad someone loved you enough to share Christ with you? So they're quite upset. They complained, Luke 5.30 says. Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? This is all wrong. By the way, they said this to the disciples. I imagine they were looking through the windows because they wouldn't be caught dead in this guy's home. And when the disciples came out, they began to complain to them, and Jesus overheard them. By the way, this, the conflict stories follow the same theme. There's a story that takes place, a scene, a situation. Then there's a complaint, an accusation, and then Jesus responds in some way to resolve the conflict. He gives forth some authoritative statement. And they were shocked by what Jesus was doing, but they're going to be even more shocked by what Jesus is going to say. Verse 17, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And they're shocked by what he said. You know, he actually agrees with what the Pharisee said. "Eh, These people are sinners. You're right. He uses an old Jewish proverb that they would have been well acquainted with this. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Everyone agrees with that. And Jesus would have said, you're right, these people are troubled. They're very sick. Their lifestyle has damaged them tremendously. Their sin and the evil that they are covering will destroy their soul. They need help. But where else should a doctor be? And Jesus takes the wonderful name of the great physician. Isn't that a great title for Jesus? He is the master when he calls Levi. And he is the great physician when he heals him. And Jesus loves to destroy broken people. Doctors don't make house calls on those who are well. (laughs) It's a brilliant answer. It's concise. It's devastating. And Matthew tells us in in Matthew chapter 9 that he added this thought from Matthew 9, verse 13. After he said it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, he said, Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. There's the point he's trying to get at. I'm not looking for you just to obey religious rules and make sacrifices that make you think you're good. And some of you think by the sacrifices you've made that you are a pretty good person. And yet that's not how you measure a standard of righteousness. Jesus says, understand what mercy is. That's what I want. Have mercy on people. You can read about it in Titus chapter 3 when he talks about when the kindness of God appeared. Those of us who once were without mercy now receive mercy and were regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. We are transformed. Everyone is sick and everyone needs a spiritual doctor. Everyone. But if you're under the terrible illusion that you're fine, that you're righteous. At least you're better than everyone else and you're sure God is going to grade on a curve. If you don't need a doctor, you're not going to go. By the way, doctors will tell us that most of the people who come to them aren't the ones who really need to come to them. It's the ones who don't come to them who really should. Jesus was just saying the same thing. If you think you're righteous, you're actually more needy than the people you condemn. If you think you're righteous, Jesus says to you, I have nothing to say. If you don't think that you need a doctor, then you are in a position, get this, where God can help you. That's a bit bold and a bit brash, but I want you to understand that God came to save the lost. If you're not lost, what's he going to do? J.C. Ryle said we know nothing properly in religion if we think the sense of sin should keep us away from Christ. To feel our sins and know our sickness is what drives us to Christ and it's the beginning of genuine Christianity. The beginning is to see your need, to feel your sin. And apparently Levi felt all of that and Jesus saw it. And when he said, Follow me, Levi said, Man, that's just exactly what I wanted to do. But I didn't think I was good enough. And I didn't think you would call me. I don't know what his excuses might have been before. But he left all, everything, to follow Jesus. I wonder if we are the generation who is quick to criticize and slow to care. I would have mercy. And not sacrifice. Now, none of us would say, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a Pharisee. All of us detest the Pharisees. Philosophically, we're not Pharisees. We just are practically. We just live like Pharisees. I'm sure the Pharisees didn't want to be called whitewashed sepulchers. On the outside, you look good. But inside, whoa, that's another story. We need to get back into circulation. What people are you rubbing your life against who don't know Jesus so that you rub off on them and you pray so much so that they won't rub off on you? But you're doing exactly what Jesus said. I pray not to take them out of the world, Jesus said, but to keep them from the evil one who's in the world. How consistent is Jesus? He never sinned, right? So he didn't pick up defilement in this dinner. Did he hear some things that were probably off-colored or inappropriate? I bet he did. Like the guy who just came to Christ and he was giving his testimony in church and he swore several times. Never knew that those words weren't appropriate. That's all he knew. Someone in the crowd criticized him. Pastor, don't ever let someone talk like that in church again. I desire mercy and not sacrifice that's Jesus we learned something very interesting about Jesus several things in this dinner first of all he was comfortable around non-religious people are you I know we didn't agree with them but they felt welcomed He easily related to people of different cultures, from different backgrounds, the undesirables. Luke chapter 15 and verse 2 says he welcomes sinners, and that was said to criticize him. And yet that's a great mark. It's a badge of honor. Not from the Pharisees. And Jesus was concerned for people more than his personal Reputation. People are more important than prejudice. And we've got a lot of that. People are more important than class, position. More than race, ethnic background. More important than wealth, whether they have it or they don't. Sex, whether they're male or female or struggling struggling to know what they are. Whether they're Republican or Democrat, people are more important than that. Whether they're Bronco fans or Patriot people, more important than that. Jesus was also committed to his mission. More concerned about being caring and compassionate than critical and condemning. And there was a lot he could have condemned them for. And I'm sure Jesus didn't say to them, All's fine with your life, continue on as you are. No, he gave them biblical instruction. But first, there was the mercy and the compassion. You know, we need to learn how to relate to culture better than we do, we need to get back into circulation. I like this perspective about relating to culture. Some of us go to extremes. There is absolute isolation. There is this calloused withdrawal from everything around us because we're afraid that somehow we might get tainted. Again, an understanding legitimate fear, but it should not hold us back. Callous withdrawal. We simply don't care. And we isolate. The opposite extreme is total accommodation, where we completely accept everything that the world offers. (laughs) We love what the world provides. And without discrimination, we swallow it whole. But the best position is wise integration, careful and prudent interaction with everything. Knowing what we shouldn't do, knowing what we can do, but passionately going after it for the glory of God. You see, Jesus could see what few others could see in Levi. He saw a needy soul. He saw a hurting person from a hated class who needed the hope that Jesus, only Jesus, could give. I desire mercy. Mercy. And that sacrifice. One of the most helpful things that I try to remind myself is that, is that those who are around me, they're not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. And they need my love and compassion, the love of God through me. Oh, and by the way, I think this is the day that Levi got a new name. Did you know he had a different name? Jesus used to do this. Uh, Simon became Peter. Yeah, you're a little pebble, now you're going to be a rock. Jesus called the sons, gave the name the sons of thunder to James and John, which had a good connotation and a negative one. But Levi got the new name. I think it was here, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly, but he did have another name. His name was Matthew. Matthew, which means gift of God. God gave him a gift by grace. And he became a gift to others. And as someone well said, Matthew left everything except his pen because he took up pen in hand later on. A tax collector wrote the gospel according to Matthew. Wow, that's grace. Isn't it? By the way, John Mark, the author of the gospel according to Mark, went AWOL once and was kicked off the missionary team and then later was restored to write the gospel according to John. Break our heart, O God, with the very thing that breaks yours. Centuries ago, there were a number of workmen who were seen dragging a huge block of marble that came from the famous quarries in Italy into the square of a cathedral. It was going to be made into a Wonderful statue of an Old Testament prophet. But the sculptor, Donatello, came and looked at the block of marble and said, It's flawed, I won't use it. And the statue sat in the square for several years until another sculptor came by and he looked at that thing and he saw something beyond the flaw. And he began to chisel and he began to work for two years on that same block of marble. When he was done, there was a day in which he invited the famous artisans of the day. Botticelli, Leonardo da Vinci were among those who were present when the unveiling took place of this wonderful statue, Michelangelo's David. It became a masterpiece because he looked beyond the flaw. To the potential within. That's what Jesus did for you. And that's what we should do for others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, touch our hearts with that which moves yours. Break our hearts with the very things that break yours. And may we act like you to a hurting Lost and dying world that needs salt and light. In Jesus' name.